You're listening to Amazing Discoveries Audio. This is Zachariah, Episode 1, with Walter Fite. Today we'll be looking at the book Zachariah. Zachariah is a fascinating book, and there are so many parallels in the book of Zechariah with what we read in the book of Revelation that uh, it deserves an, a second look. Uh, there's not much known about Zechariah other than that he was a prophet, he was probably also a priest, and uh, he served in the construction of the temple when it was restored after the Babylonian captivity. Zechariah was probably born uh, in captivity, and he probably started his mission around about 520 BC. And uh, there is some confusion as to Zechariah, because Jesus mentions a Zechariah when he talks to the Pharisees, and he says... In Matthew chapter 23, verse 33, ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? Wherefore, behold, I send you the prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them shall ye scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city. Then he says this, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, son of Barachias, whom ye slew between the temple and the altar. Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. So this has caused some confusion, because in the first verse of the book of Zechariah it says, in the eighth month, in the second year of Darius came the word of the Lord unto Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, the prophet. Now in the book of Ezra, he's referred to as the son of Edo. Now that is not a problem because grandfathers and fathers were basically interchangeable when it came to the terminology of son of. But uh, Berechiah did cause some problems because there was a Zechariah that was killed between the porch and the altar, but it was not this Zechariah. That Zechariah lived some 300 years before, and that was in the time of Joash. And we read that in Second Chronicles chapter 24, verse 20. And the Spirit of God came upon Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada. So here is a, a, another genealogy. The priest, which stood above the people and said unto them, Thus says God, Why transgress ye the commandments of the Lord, that you cannot prosper? So here's a reference to the commandments of God. Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has also forsaken you. And they conspired against him and stoned him with stones at the commandment of the king in the court of the house of the Lord. 
And in verse 22, thus Joash the king remembered not the kindness which Jehoiada his father had done to him, but slew his son. And when he died, he said, the Lord look upon it and require it. So that is a reference to the death of Zechariah some 300 years, probably 310 years prior to the Zechariah that is writing the book of Zechariah. Now, which one did Jesus refer to? Some people claim that the Zechariah, who wrote the book Zechariah, suffered the same fate as the previous one. And that is a possibility, but it seems somewhat unlikely because the only prophet that is mentioned as having been stoned between the porch and the altar is the prophet that lived 300 years prior to the one in the book of Zechariah. So the argument is, was Jesus mistaken? Some say that the word uh, son of Berechiah was added because if you go to the parallel text, which you find in Luke chapter 11, verse 51, then it just reads, from the blood of Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, which perished between the altar and the temple, verily I say unto you, it shall be required of this generation. So some feel that perhaps it was added. Nevertheless, irrespective of whether this Zechariah suffered the same fate as the previous one or not, I don't think that is what we need to concern ourselves with when we read the prophecies of Zechariah, but it's likely that Jesus was probably referring to the one that died at the hand of Joash. Now, why I'm interested in this book, Zechariah, is because of the relationship between the visions in Zechariah and those that we find in the book of Revelation. Noteworthy in connection with uh, the book of Chronicles, which mentions the death of Zechariah between the porch and the altar, those books were originally in the last place in the Old Testament. In fact, there where we have the book Malachi now. So, by referring to Abel and Zacharias, it would be the beginning and the end of the Old Testament period. And that would make a lot of sense. So let us study this book, Zechariah, and see whether we can see some parallels. Now, not much is known about him, except that he was contemporaneous with Haggai. And they were actually very successful prophets. Haggai is probably the most successful prophet because he encouraged the people when they were when they were really disheartened because the temple was going nowhere uh, there were so many obstacles placed in their way they were waiting for decrees to stop the building in its entirety and they were discouraged and here come Haggai and Zechariah and encourage the people to build the temple and they were exceedingly successful now, some claim that the prophecies are hard to understand. We have to see them in the context of ancient Israel only. But these prophecies seem to have so many parallels with uh, the coming of the Lord and the time of the end that perhaps there is a double application that we might look at. 
uh, we read in Fundamentals of Christian Education on pages 187 to 189, we read a statement that's quite interesting. The reason that many professed Christians do not have a clear, well-defined experience is that they do not think it their privilege to understand what God has spoken through his word. In other words, God didn't write the Bible and he didn't give prophecies for us to be uninformed. He gave them so that we should be informed. So we have a duty, now we have a privilege to study the word and to see what is it trying to tell us. That doesn't mean that we get it right 100%, but it does mean that we can, we can look for parallels and try to understand what the book is telling us. So let us look at this book in some detail and go through it verse by verse. Uh, the, the name Zechariah in itself is interesting because it means the Lord has remembered. Even if it sometimes seems as though God has forgotten his people, things are going wrong on a corporate level or an individual level, God doesn't forget, he remembers. The other interesting thing is that Zechariah, unlike Haggai, who gives encouragement to the people, has visions, and these visions pertain to the future and the glory of Israel which weren't actually fulfilled in the time of Israel and therefore must have a double application for the time of the end. And he received eight visions. Now eight is an interesting number because if you study the numerology of the Bible, then you will find that eight is normally associated with Jesus Christ. So where six is associated with the Antichrist and with the adversary, Eight is associated with Jesus. We don't have time to go into all of that. So this is actually a book of visions concerning Jesus Christ. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, came the word of the Lord unto Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Idu, the prophet, saying, The Lord has been sore displeased with your fathers. Therefore say thou unto them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Turn ye unto me, that the Lord of hosts, and I will turn unto you, says the Lord of hosts. So here is a request for the people of God to return to God. If we look at the end times, there was a time when people were on fire for God. During the Reformation time, people were prepared to die at the stake. They suffered persecution. They stood firm for their faith. And then slowly, as the fires of persecution appeared to decline, uh, well, there was this falling away and this complacency. And I believe God is calling his people back in the time that we are living in that we should return to the Lord with all our hearts and with all our souls and with all our minds. Be ye not as your fathers, unto whom the former prophets have cried, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Turn ye now from your evil ways and from your evil doings. But they did not hear, nor hearken unto me, says the Lord. So it's actually a call to stop our stubbornness to compare our actions and our doings with this word, this word of God, and to see where we stand. Your fathers were as they, 
and the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not take hold of your fathers? And they returned and said, Like as the Lord of hosts thought to do unto us according to our ways and according to our doings, so has he dealt with us. Cause and effect. Action and consequence. God had given instruction to his prophets. They had been informed of the consequences of their ways. And should they not live in harmony with what God had required, there were consequences. And the fathers had experienced this. It's fascinating that every generation has to experience it again. We all make the same mistakes as our fathers. We're no better than they were. Upon the four and twentieth day of the eleventh month, which is the month of Zebat, in the second year of Darius, came the word of the Lord unto Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Ido, the prophet, saying, I saw by night, and behold, so here is the first vision. It's an introductory vision, basically, to the rest of the book of Zechariah. And uh, some people want to draw parallels between what we will see in this vision and what happened at the end. In this introductory vision, it's probably not an exact alliance. So let's just look at it. I saw by night, and behold, a man riding upon a red horse. And he stood amongst the myrtle trees that were in the bottom, and behind him were the red horses, speckled and white. So he sees a man riding on a red horse, standing amongst the myrtle trees a little bit lower down. Now the myrtle tree was an evergreen tree and it had beautiful flowers and it was very fragrant. So the myrtle trees stand for God's people because in the Bible a tree is often associated with an individual, a person. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar was likened unto a tree that was cut down. Uh, we're supposed to be pillars of cedar in the temple, etc. So, he's standing between the myrtle trees. In other words, he's in amongst God's people. And then he sees behind them were red horses, speckled and white. Then said I, O oh my Lord, what are these? And the angel that talked with me said unto me, I will show thee what these be. And the man that stood amongst the myrtle trees answered and said, These are they whom the Lord has sent to walk to and fro through the earth. So these are individuals that have been sent to walk to and fro in the earth. They have been sent by God. So they are God's messengers, God's ambassadors, God's people, God's evangelists. God's pastors, God's people who spread the gospel. And the color of the horses is red. Red stands for martyrdom. And the man who is in the midst of his people throughout scripture is Jesus Christ, the one who is in the midst of his people. And he himself was martyred. So the color red stands for martyrdom. 
and behind him were red horses, people that had been martyred, speckled horses, and uh, uh, the alternative would be bay horses, which is also a, a, a bright red in a sense, and white, color of righteousness. It's interesting that amongst these horses, the black horses are not mentioned. So those that represent God, that have been sent to witness, are those with these colors. So it's the message that goes out. And they answered the angel of the Lord that stood amongst the myrtle trees. So now we get some more information. The angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is referred to as the captain of the Lord's host. And it's a representation of Jesus Christ. So we know that it is Jesus Christ in the midst of his people. They answered the angel of the Lord that stood among the myrtle trees and said, We have walked to and fro through the earth, and behold, all the earth sitteth still and is at rest. So once their work has been done, the consequence is rest. Rest in what? Must be in the completed work of Christ. So it is the gospel message that brings rest. So we have an introduction of those that are being sent. Uh, I don't believe that in this particular case there are specific time periods associated with these horses, as you would find in the book of Revelation. It's just an introduction. We'll come to other horses later on, which would be more specific. Now we get to verse 12, which in the original is a new paragraph. And we read from there. By the way, if you look at the numbers in these uh, chapters, they're very interesting. For example, verse 7 said, Upon the four and twentieth day of the eleventh month, which is the month of Sabbath, etc. These dates are scriptural dates. And it's interesting that in the occult world, they take these dates and make them special events. So the 11th month often has very interesting connotations, chaos, etc. Uh, the 24th day of the month, so we will just take it at face value. This is the time when it happened, and uh, we don't want to put any connotations into the particular dates, as do Kabbalistic thinkers. Verse 12. And the angel of the Lord answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long wilt thou not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah, against which thou hast indignation these three score and ten years. So there is the number 70, and this number again is one that is very prominent in Kabbalistic thinking. And just recently we had the 70th year of the existence of the modern nation of Israel being celebrated. So these dates are used by Kabbalistic thinkers to bring about or discuss events in modern times. But it's obviously referring to the time of captivity that the Jews were in and the restoration of all things. So if we parallel that to our time, 
Well, we are also waiting for the restoration of all things. And I think we can also cry, how long, Lord? How long, Sovereign Lord? If we go to the book of Revelation, we have the souls that are symbolically under the altar also shouting, how long, Sovereign Lord? How long before you avenge the blood of the saints and the martyrs? So when will the restoration take place? And the Lord answered the angel that talked with me with good words and comfortable words. So even if it seems daunting and even if times are hard, remember that God is in control and he will comfort his people. He's the God of comfort. So the angel that communed with me said unto me, Cry thou, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with a great jealousy. Now, all of these prophecies have a, a then-time application and a future application. It's talking about literal Israel and it's talking about spiritual Israel. And just as God was concerned with literal Israel, so he is concerned with his church, with his people, in this time in which we are living. I am very sore displeased with the heathen that are at ease. You know, when we look at what's happening in the world today and the legislations that are being passed, which seem so far removed from the Word of God, one sometimes wonder how they can be so at ease and we're asking the same questions. For I was but a little displeased, and they helped towards the affliction. Therefore thus says the Lord, I am returned to Jerusalem with mercies. My house shall be built in it, says the Lord of hosts, and a line shall be stretched forth upon Jerusalem. There will be a restoration. I believe that restoration in the spiritual sense is just before us. So it's very important that we understand what is Zechariah trying to tell us and how does it pertain to our time? Because the time that he was predicting to his people is past. So we're now in the antitype. Cry ye yet, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, My cities through prosperity shall be spread abroad, and the Lord shall yet comfort Zion, and shall yet choose Jerusalem. It is a promise. We can put a big P next to our Bibles and say, it's a promise. There will be a restoration. Just be patient. So chapter 12 talks about the restoration that will come, the comfort that God will give. And then we come to verse 18, which is again a new paragraph. And now we're getting a little bit of detail. And basically, this will be the second vision of Zechariah. Then lifted up mine eyes and saw, and I behold, four horns. Now, we know that a horn in the Bible represents a political entity. So in the time of Israel, there had been nations that had persecuted literal Israel. As to what those horns represent, there's much speculation. We know that Egypt persecuted God's people. 
We know that the Assyrians persecuted God's people. We know that the Babylonians persecuted God's people. We knew that they were under captivity in the time of the Medo-Persians. There you have four horns. And the time in which this was written, this book, was in the time of the Medo-Persians. And if we look at an end-time application, we also have four powers, four political entities that we find in the book of Daniel. And that would be a representation of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. So four, four entities that afflicted God's people. So I lifted up mine eyes and I saw and behold four horns, four nations, four entities. And I said unto the angel that talked with me, What be these? And he answered me, These are the horns which have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. So what is the Lord's answer to this persecuting power? So you have the nations outside that try to destroy God's people and the message they bear. So God has an answer. And the Lord showed me four carpenters. Now the word used there incorporates more than just carpentry in, in wood. It would include all kinds of artisan work, like metal work, etc. But the connotation of carpenter is an interesting one, because Jesus was a carpenter. So the four carpenters could be the answer to what these outside powers are inflicting upon God's people. Then I said, what come these to do? And he spoke, saying, These are the horns which have scattered Judah, referring to the four horns, so that no man did lift up his head, but these are come to fray them, to cast out the horns. Now, to fray something is to unravel it. If your clothes are frayed, they are unraveled. So God will send his messengers that represent his character, the character of the carpenter the Bethlehemite, Jesus Christ, and they will unravel what these other powers had done. So it's a counter-message. Which lifted up their horn over the land of Judah to scatter it. So you have these competing forces, good, evil, a message of destruction, a message of restoration, two characters, one representing the character of Christ, the other one representing the character of the arch-deceiver. So that was the second vision, the one of the competing powers, which had a then-time application, but I believe also had an end-time application. And I certainly hope that uh, the carpenters will do their job well and unravel what the enemy has done, not only in terms of the physical aspects, the political aspects, the economic aspects, but also in terms of the spiritual aspects, the false representation, the Babylonian syncretism that has come into the world to unravel it and show how to come back into harmony with the Word of God. Now we come to a third vision. 
And I lifted up mine eyes again, and looked, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Now, whenever the Bible speaks about a measuring line, it has to do with uh, measuring whether you qualify, measuring your stature, measuring your character, seeing if you will fit into God's kingdom or whether you won't. So it's a measure of character. Then said I, Whither goest thou? And he said unto me, To measure Jerusalem. In other words, to measure God's people. To see whether they qualify. Whether they measure up to God's standard. To see what is the breadth thereof and what is the length thereof. So this is a reference to judgment. Do we measure up? Do we qualify? And we will come to length and breadth in the rest of the book of Zechariah in a while. And behold, the angel that talked with me went forth, and another angel went out to meet him, and said unto him, Run, speak to this man, saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns, without walls for the multitude of men and cattle therein. What an amazing promise. It looks as though God people are, are hounded. You take the time period of Zechariah when the Samaritans were putting so much pressure on God's people. And it looked like nothing, nothing was progressing. And here comes this amazing statement. I will measure it and I will see whether it can hold God's people and whether people will measure up to fit into it. And this promise, it shall be inhabited as towns without walls. In other words, no boundaries. It will be huge for the multitude of men and cattle therein. Now, the Samaritans were an interesting people because they had a mixture of the religion of Israel and the religion of Babylon. It was a syncretistic religion. It started off with Jeroboam, who had set up the counterfeit temple, and said, you will not worship in Jerusalem, you will worship here. You can use the name Yahweh, you can do all of those things, but you will not go to Jerusalem. But salvation is outlined very specifically. There's only one path to salvation. And uh, that is through the method that God has put in place. And there's only one individual, according to Scripture, whereby we may have salvation. Because there is no other name under heaven and earth whereby you may be saved except the name Christ Jesus. So here is the promise that God's kingdom will triumph in the end and that there will be multitudes that will accept this message. Verse 5, For I said, The Lord will be unto her a wall of fire round about, and will be the glory in the midst of her. So just as he was standing amidst the myrtle trees, so he's standing in the midst of God's people. Then, and in the end. Then verse 6 is a, is a new paragraph, and it starts with these interesting words, Ho, ho! Come forth and flee from the land of the north, says the Lord, for I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, says the Lord. And verse 7 makes 
abundantly clear. Deliver thyself, O Zion, that dwelleth with the daughter of Babylon. So come out of Babylon. This is a theme that runs throughout the Bible. This is the theme of the book of Revelation. Uh, what was happening here in the time of Zechariah, they were no longer part of the Babylonian kingdom. They were now living in Medo-Persian times because Darius was a Medo-Persian king. And yet this admonition remains, come out of her, my people, come out of Babylon. So we need to know what constitutes Babylon and what do we have to distance ourselves from, from the land of the north. And those two little words, ho, ho, it's interesting that these words are spoken by God. And uh, there's a counterfeit in the days in which we live, where there's a counterfeit individual who also claims to be eternal, who also rides in his chariot across the skies, who also utters the words, ho, ho. And uh, that is a representation of the sun god, he is called Santa, which is a scrambling of the word Satan, but it does not go there. I'm just interested that the words ho-ho should be used in such a counterfeit fashion in the days in which we live. So one of the Babylonian uh, ideologies was the story of the sun god who would ride across the sky at the solstice time and he would be drawn by a chariot of animals. And if you were a Scandinavian, it was drawn by a, a chariot of reindeer. It's a Babylonian syncretistic religion that has been mingled with Christianity. Come out of her, my people. Separate yourself from those that dwell in Babylon. For thus says the Lord of hosts, After the glory has he sent me unto the nations which spoiled you, for he that toucheth you touches the apple of his eye. Here's another tremendous promise. Sent to these people that uh, spread these Babylonian ideologies. Separate yourselves from them. For behold, I will shake mine hand upon them, and they shall be a spoil to their servants, and ye shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. So this is a promise that God's people will take heed of the call. And I believe God's Spirit is working with all of humanity. And many people are waking up and saying that there's something wrong. We cannot put our finger on it, but what is it? It's up to God's messengers to set this record straight. Then we have come to verse 10, which is a new paragraph. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for lo, I come, and I will dwell in the midst of thee, says the Lord. So it's the promise of the final restoration, which will take place, a reference to the coming of the Lord. So this is a distinctly messianic uh, verse. Now, promises were conditional. It could have happened in the time of the Jewish nation, had they accepted the Messiah, then he would have reigned amongst them already, but they did not. So this conditional promise is transferred 
to spiritual Israel and will find its fulfillment. So he will come and he will reign in the midst of his people. And many nations shall be joined to the Lord. There's another amazing promise. In that day and shall be my people and I will dwell in the midst of thee and thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts has sent me unto thee. And the Lord shall inherit Judah, his portion in the Holy Land, and shall choose Jerusalem again. Be silent, O flesh, before the Lord, for he is raised up out of his holy habitation. This powerful representation of the coming of Christ, setting up his kingdom, it will be fulfilled. It wasn't in the days of literal Israel, but it will be fulfilled in the days of spiritual Israel. And then the fourth vision. And this is an amazing vision. And it pertains to our message at the end of time. And uh, if we do not have this message, then we have a syncretism in our midst. And we have to be very, very careful that what we preach is in harmony with the Word of God, is in harmony with what the disciples taught, is in harmony with what the reformers taught because they took their stand on the word of God, sola scriptura, sola fides, sola gratia. And he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. Well, this is a type of God's people, and Joshua stands for the high priest that did service in the time of Zechariah, and he's a representation of Jesus Christ as the high priest, but he's a human being. So in a sense, he becomes the embodiment of the people of Israel. And you have Christ standing on the one hand, and you have the accuser standing on the other hand, and the battle for God's people is taking place. And the Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan, even the Lord that has chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of a fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. In a sense, we all have filthy garments because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And he answered and spoke unto those that stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And unto him he said, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with a change of raiment. This is the most important message that has to go out into the world. This is the message of salvation. This is the message of the gospel. This is the good news. And it's the message of righteousness by faith. Nothing that I do. I have filthy garments. It is he that says, take away the filthy garments. And I will clothe thee with the change of raiment. My unrighteousness will be exchanged for his righteousness. Clothed in his righteousness, we stand before the Lord of hosts. 
And I said, Let them set a fair mitre upon his head. So they set a fair mitre upon his head. This mitre of authority, where originally it said, Holy unto the Lord, holiness unto the Lord. They set a fair mitre on his head, and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord stood by. And the angel of the Lord protested unto Joshua, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts. And here comes a conditionalist aspect, which we may never forget. If thou wilt walk in my ways, and if thou wilt keep my charge, then thou shalt also judge my house, and shalt also keep my courts, and I will give thee places to walk amongst these that stand by. So, you know, people today believe once saved, always saved. No. Salvation is conditional, and the condition has never changed. God did not remove Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden just to let them come back in without repentance and change of heart. If they were removed because of transgression, then they will be led in if they come back into harmony with God's principles. But we cannot do it by ourselves because we are dead in transgression. So we need the, the power of God to resurrect us from that death into which we have fallen. And we need a righteousness which Martin Luther called an alien righteousness, a righteousness outside of ourselves. And this is the message of righteousness by faith that the world needs to hear. It is foreign to every single religious system other than Protestant Christianity. Only Protestant Christianity had this principle embodied in its constitution. And if this principle of justification should fall, Martin Luther says, then the whole system will fall. Other religions do not believe in justification by faith. Other religious systems do not believe in the atonement. They believe that you can be saved by your works. Roman Catholicism does not believe in the atonement. They do not teach that Jesus died for you. You are not saved by the blood of the Lamb. You are saved by His good works, as well as the good works, the meritorious actions of the saints and of Mary, which are all in the treasury of merit, out of which merit can be... Uh, given to those who lack. So, this message of righteousness by faith is the central message of the Bible. It will be the central message of all that follows in the book of Zechariah. And it is the salvation in Christ and Christ alone that is central here in this book. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, thou and thy fellows that sit before thee, for they are men wondered at. For behold, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. Here you have a messianic promise. You have the messianic promise of the branch, the one who would come from the stump, the one who had been cut off. In Babylonian law, you have the same symbolism where you have 
Semiramis and uh, Baal worship, which has the same connotation of having been cut off, Nimrod having been destroyed and then resurfacing, which is a counterfeit of the true branch that would come, namely Jesus Christ. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua upon one stone shall be seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave the graving thereof, says the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. This stone, this is the cornerstone upon which the whole structure of Christianity stands. It's a reference to Jesus Christ. There are seven eyes, which is the number of divinity. And in that day, says the Lord of hosts, shall ye all, every man, his neighbor, under one vine and under one fig tree. One fig tree. The fig tree was a symbol of Israel. Spiritual Israel shall be gathered to the Messiah and the message of righteousness by faith will go into the world. Now in our next study, we will look at the visions that unfold and we'll look at the fifth to the eighth vision. And these are fascinating. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for prophets such as Zechariah which tell us where we are standing in the stream of time, which tell us what the issues are that need to be preached in the world. And thank you, Lord, that you have promised that you will gather your people and that you will come in the clouds of heaven and restore your kingdom. We long for that day in Jesus' name. Amen. If this episode impacted you, Please share it with others. Amazing Discoveries is a donor-supported ministry. To help us keep producing content like this, visit AmazingDiscoveries.org. And, as always, you can find the visual presentation of this episode on ADTV.watch.